Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Episode 118. On today's podcast, we talk about the evolution of VW conversion engines. And the evolution I'm talking about is essentially the LS motor of the flat four pancake style engine, the overhead cam Subaru engine. This week's podcast, I get John Rakowski, who is the foremost leader in Subi conversions as far as general conversions. He's owned Outfront Motorsports for over 20 years. He's been building Subaru conversion buggies for longer than most people have been in the game. I turned to him to get a bunch of questions answered and get some insight from him as some of the do's and don'ts for your typical conversion. Thinking about converting one of my cars to Subaru power, I definitely found this podcast to be hugely valuable. On this episode, we'll talk about fuel injection, displacement sizes, what's the best engine that will fit in your existing Volkswagen, power for dollars, and a lot of other detailed stuff that I, myself, as you guys being VW enthusiasts thinking about this conversion, would be interesting in doing. Now, ultimately, John doesn't do in-car conversions. He builds the motors, and most of the conversions that he does are in dune buggies where there's not a lot of work put into being really efficient at setting up the cooling system through the car and under the tunnel and all that stuff. So we'll evolve into getting that information later from possibly someone else who does more of those complete conversions. But for John, we reached out to him in respect to some of the platforms, the details, and the baselines to start with in respect to doing your uh, Subaru conversion and, and really getting a lot of the bare necessities out of the way and cut through some of the myths and figure out what's going to be the most value for your money during the conversion. First, a word from our sponsors. Guess who's back? VW Trends Magazine, that's who. Bringing back the fun in magazines. A true cross-culture of the VW hobby. VW Trends was always willing to step outside and bring you the latest trend in the VW scene. And you could be a part of this historic relaunch. How, you ask? Well, go to VWTrendsMagazine.com and there are several different ways that you can help relaunch this magazine. That's right. This is a grassroots effort put on by the VW community itself, relaunching one of those fun magazines that was bringing the culture to the market. They've got subscription packages all the way from $1.99 in the Founders Club all the way to donate five bucks just to do your part to help get this back on the scene. This magazine for the people's car is for the people and it's by the people. So now you guys can be a part of history and contribute to help get this magazine relaunched. First issue's coming out shortly, so stand by to get more details on that. But for now, go to VWTrendsMagazine.com and support the relaunch of VW Trends Magazine. Are you looking to get some disc brakes on your bus on the down low? How about a narrowed beam? What about converting your bus to IRS? Well, let me tell you what. The boys over at Type E Motorsports got your number. They've got a disc brake kit that allows you to go buy off-the-shelf factory-available parts at any local auto parts place and adapt disc brakes and wide five to the front of your bus. For only 500 bucks, you can pick up that kit that takes your 63 to 67 bus and converts it to discs in the front with ready-to-go off-the-shelf parts that you purchase at your local auto parts place. How about a narrowed beam? A US-made narrowed four-inch link pin beam, 215 bucks. Or to do IRS, 950 bucks for a complete easy bolt-in IRS kit. He also does full bus beams end-to-end, rotor-to-rotor for three grand turnkey. So if you guys want to get some of your stuff decked out on your bus or your bug, go check out Type E Motorsports. Now, Brian's been on the podcast before, so you can check him out in episode number 105. Check him out at type-emotorsports.com. They've got a lot of suspension parts available, all U.S. made and ready to go. So hit them up at typeemotorsports.com. Don't forget to support the sponsors that support your favorite podcast. Now, without any further ado, guys, oh, but wait, shout outs. We'll give shout outs at the end of the podcast. So after the podcast, you'll hear the shout outs of people that supported this podcast this week. But for now, guys, let's get into it. Episode 118, John Rykowski, Outfront Motorsports, Subaru Conversions on Let's Talk Dubs. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have So on today's show, uh, there's been a lot of people focused on trying to do some power power plant improvements on their Volkswagens. And 
one of the alternative methods that people have been reaching out to for a long time over the past few years has been the Subaru platform. And in order to bring you guys the people that, that know the most on that, I'm bringing, in one, my opinion is one of the foremost experts in Subaru conversions and aftermarket Subaru parts is John Rakowski from Outfront Motorsports. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, John, the way we always start the podcast is, what's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Well, VW, uh, my VW story would start probably in about 1976. I was 14 years old. Uh, my, uh, I was always involved in mechanics, and I, my brother-in-law had a VW Bug, and I rebuilt his motor when I was 14 years old. Uh, when I did it, I made like 100 or $200, and I thought, wow, for a, a young teenager, this was a great way to uh, make some money. And, uh, of course, I smashed main bearing journals with pins and things, you know, crazy things like that. I mean, as a 14-year-old, how much could you know? But anyways, that was my introduction uh, a little bit into automotive, at least in a business sense, with my brother-in-law, and it took off from there. I had always had an auto repair shop out of my mom's garage at home. And I worked on all types of cars, but VWs were kind of interesting. Uh, they were definitely unique to work on. So anyways, uh, I rebuilt my first VW and then uh, you know, did some through the years. Uh, I started an auto repair shop uh, in 19, let's see, 1980, 1980 about 1980, uh, 1983. And at that point, I was uh, working on cars, uh, full shop. And then my friend got me into uh, going to the sand dunes. And, uh, of course, for me to go to the sand dunes, I had to have a dune buggy. So I bought a $1,500 dune buggy, had an 1835 in it. And, of course, that was a really small motor, not very much power. <clears throat> and then uh, it blew up, of course. And so I decided to start doing something bigger. I got into uh, uh, ARP. Uh, split case. It was a three-piece case with a drop camshaft, and I had a 90-millimeter stroke and 101.4, four-inch bore. It was Siamese cylinders, Superflow angle port heads, uh, fuel injection. It was a 2919cc uh, VW motor that I put in my dune buggy. That was, uh, I thought I'd be the fastest guy in the world. Incredible half-inch head studs, that kind of thing, and I put it all together, and I mean, it was great. It was good but it still was a VW. I still had problems, had to adjust the valves every single trip. You know, oil leaks were impossible. Of course, I didn't have any carb jets to plug up because I was fuel injection, but it was only okay, you know? And anyways, uh, one day I was out there, I parked my car in the sand dunes, shut it off and went to start it and the motor locked up. And lo and behold, one of my exhaust seats fell out, held my exhaust valve open and locked my motor up. And that was it. I had so much money in that motor. I probably had, I don't know, $10,000 of parts, wedge-made crankshaft, and all this kind of crazy stuff. And I said, I'm done. I, I'm done with this motor. I sold the parts for $4,000. And uh, my buddy told me, hey, why don't you put a Subaru motor in your car? Uh, you know, that's what everybody else is doing. So why don't you try putting a Subaru in? So I, I went down, bought a $600 Subaru at the time, a two-liter and uh, bought a computer and I bought a special turbo from Japan that was only available in Japan because of some hot rod turbo, what didn't exist in California, in the United States. So I put that together and uh, went out and uh, unbelievable. That thing had so much power. I uh, ran it 20 pounds of boost on race gas and it was estimated probably 350 horsepower. My, my, by the way, my 2919cc uh, only had about 200 horsepower. That was it. Wow. And, yeah, so I put this thing together. I mean, I had, you know, maybe $3,000 altogether and a lot of my time. And here I was with 350 horsepower in my car. It was just a rocket ship. And I said, man, why would anybody ever build a VW when this kind of power was there, especially after having come from that $10,000, $12,000 motor I had? So that was the beginning of uh, Outfront Motorsports. Actually, back then it was called Outback Motorsports. Uh, we just came up with the name, my friend and I, because uh, for two reasons. One, it was a Subaru, and so that we kind of called it the Outback because of Australia. And we did the work uh, on these motors out back of my auto repair shop, so we called it Outback Motorsports. Uh, 
but there's a little funny story about that a, a few years later after we got kind of established i never did a trademark uh trademark uh on my name and subaru came after me and gave me a cease and desist on using the name outback because it had you know subaru had a car called the outback in 1997 or 98 and so i couldn't use the name they told me you know i'm gonna get sued big time if i don't drop the name so i uh I stopped selling all the parts, changed my name to Outfront Motorsports. So that's what happened. And, so, uh, so one of the questions that I have is, you know, you go right from like, I'm assuming you're like a sand addicted guy. Like as soon as you get in, you go right from 1835 to 2900 CC, like full blown race motor. Yeah. So, well, I, I went to the sand dunes first, uh, was introduced to the sand dunes with a, uh, a motorcycle and, you know, I, I had no idea how much taxing the sand is on motors. I mean, the sand is really heavy. I, I had a Yamaha IT 200. It was a little two stroke dual sport bike uh, back in the day. I don't know. I think it was like 1986. Anyways, I thought that thing was awesome. I went to the sand and I seized it in about two hours. And then I, you know, then my buddies all, I go to the big hill and everyone's racing CR 500s and so I didn't have that kind of money back then. So I had a CR 480. Anyone knows a CR 480? It's air cooled, yeah. just a beast, and just vibrated my hands. I mean, it had big power, but just vibrated my hands. I I used that for like two or three trips. It couldn't handle it anymore. I bought a water cooled CR 500, and then I started building that motor. I put it on methanol uh, board and stroked, uh, just crazy stuff. Massive ports extended swing arm and so i was really into racing drag racing at the, in the sand dunes with my motorcycle and then uh you know but then that's then i so i started getting involved with the sand and a lot of my other friends um had dune buggies and so that's what the crave you know when i went to the dune buggy bought that 1500 dune buggy and uh, so I, I still rode a motorcycle for a while but i i did have that vw um 1835 and i did go straight to that 2919 because i was a mechanic it was easy for me to do, and I, I just wanted to go all out thinking, yeah, this would be my last motor I ever built, and clearly it wasn't wasn't even close. Now, now when you're doing the when, – when you're working on the Subi swap at that time, like it's not a super popular thing or it's just starting to gain some traction in the dunes or what – you know, everybody – I mean, you go right to the pinnacle, the three-piece case, the fuel injection, and I'm, I'm assuming it was like a – uh, like a, like a FITA or a Hellbrand fuel injection or, um, uh, it was, uh, it was the electronic fuel inject, uh, electronic fuel injection. I don't remember the brand, but I had, you know, 50 millimeter throttle bodies, you know, twin, you know, uh, you still have linkage to deal with and stuff like that. And it was just, uh, you know, fuel injection back then that was in the uh, late 90, like, like 1995, 1998, that kind of range. And uh, there just wasn't a lot of stuff going on with fuel injection. It was uh, so I, I don't remember what the brand it yeah. was. Well, so when you're doing that, I mean, you're now out there and and work on this and, and people are you're seeing the Subaru, right? Like the super small compact setup with overhead cam at that time i'm assuming your your first conversion was a single cam motor i mean it's like like a whole foreign world because now you got water cooled you've got a lot of different variables w was there a bunch of aftermarket stuff available at the time or not really sure well a couple things one there was another company out there it was called leading edge that was the uh company that was probably foremost uh made a big impact in the sand dunes and they were selling motors for really big money that company no longer exists they went out of business. Uh, they didn't have very good business practices. But anyways, they had a, a gorgeous one-page ad, color ad, in the uh, Sand Sports magazine, and they're selling these motors for you know fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, just really expensive. Uh, calling them 400, 500 horsepower motors, and so that's, so that's where I got my idea. I should be putting a Subaru in there. So uh, back when I did this, this is again late nineties. I bought a two-liter turbo. All the two-liter turbos were four-cam engines, so it was a quad-cam engine, dual-red cam, if you will, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a little two-liter factory turbo motor, so it was designed to have really strong pistons, had piston oil squirters out of the crankshaft main journals, uh, you know, it was a pretty stout motor, and I took that $600 stock motor, never even took the valve covers off, really didn't even clean it up. I just bought an adapter kit, put that motor in there, put the fuel injection on and stuck that turbo on. It was just amazing. 
It was so it was really crude. It was very ugly looking, but for me, it was all about power and speed. It had nothing to do with looks. Obviously, looks came later in, in down the road. So, with that, you know, fuel injection setup. What's the first? What is the first? Uh, the, the first EFI setup you do? Do you convert a factory computer, or was everything that they have aftermarket computers back then? Yeah. So, uh, factory computers were really not uh, doable because. Unless you just built a totally stock motor. Now remember, a stock ECU, the goal is to have best emissions. So that's not necessarily best power. Best power is found in a different air fuel ratio than best emissions. And so there was no real purpose of wanting to try to even do a factory ECU. If I was buying these motors, they were hard to get an ECU with them. So I just went to a company that sold a aftermarket ECU. It was uh, back in the day, it was like uh, I don't know, five or $600 for the computer. It had an open-ended wire harness, and then I had to terminate the wire harness um, on, you know, on the engine. And then I started, it had a little hand tuning, handheld tuning module that you would use. And uh, so I just set up some parameters and I used my butt dyno. That's just going back and forth on the, on the, in the sand, back and forth, back and forth till it sounded and ran better and better. I didn't have a dyno at the time. And uh, didn't, and so there's no way for me to dyno it. Didn't have the money to pay for a dyno or to for a dyno tune. So I just did it myself. And again, it was still just flat out amazing. By the time I was done after a couple of days, it was incredible. And when back when you're doing that, I mean, you come into this market. There's not a lot of stuff available. You got one big guy in the market, and then you start to really get into this. And I'm assuming a bunch of your buddies that are into the sand stuff are like, "Hey, John's doing this. I'm going to have him do a, a conversion for me. I'm going to have him switch my get rid of my VW motor, and and start going down that direction." At at what point? I mean, what are some of the initial hurdles that you have to start getting over in respect to the, the early conversions you guys were doing? That some of the problems that you solved with some of the products you came up with. Sure. So one of the one of the problems I had was uh, was manpower. So I had a, a, a bona fide operating auto repair shop, and then I'm starting to do Outback Motorsports Outback, and I had a partner involved with me, and we were doing this kind of after hours, but it was kind of eating into my my normal car repair time. So I, I you know I'm only one guy. I could only do either working on street cars or I'm working on my dune buggy project. So I kind of that was one of my biggest hurdles there. So I had a partner that helped me do some fab work and I was taking phone calls. And uh, again, my motors weren't very pretty, but they were functional. So uh, I was kind of on the low end when I got, when I started this business, I just uh, started putting things together and made them work and uh, made them stay together. Then later, a couple of years later, we officially started Outback Motorsports um, in the year 2000 with my partner and uh, basically that lasted for about a year. I, I, I paid off my, uh, my partner and then I, I basically uh, went on my own, did Outback Motorsports. And now what, some, what are some of the first things that you start to bring to the market that you see a huge need for? I mean, I saw, you know, you do a lot of pieces and parts that bolt on from take off the factory stuff and you make some more functional pieces like what? You do some of the oil fills and the some of the bracketry and whatnot. What, what are all the accessories on the outside that you guys do? Well, before we get to that, what happened was, sure. uh, you know, it was so successful. Then I started making my motors uh, look pretty. So now came the chrome and the polish and maybe made some custom little billet parts. But the real thing that took uh, that made us take off was uh, it was a good looking motor, had great power. And so I was selling complete turnkey engines at this point. Uh, you know, mainly you had an adapter kit and you had a short oil pan and you had a custom header. And uh, I was selling parts really. I mean, there was a time every Thursday night we would work till like midnight and people would come to my shop after hours, after six o'clock when I was done with my street cars. And so here comes uh, seven o'clock all the way till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. People would just be coming in, buying parts. They would go buy their own motor and they would buy you know, the computer and wire harness from me or the adapter kit or the short oil pan. And so we kind of did it a la carte at the, at the beginning. And they got, then I started moving up in the clientele base where now I was dealing with clients that <clears throat> wanted to have a whole turnkey engine. They didn't want to do it themselves. And so just a natural progression of me starting to turn motors into turnkey engines. And, and 
at that point when you're do, when you're doing the motors and like and and you're going to turnkey stuff, um, you're in this market. You know, the VW market's always been like super resourceful individuals, right? Like guys that are do it do it yourself for kind of people, and uh, and they and they have a tendency to be a little bit, let's say, on the cheap side, right? So I think maybe you're already plugged into the market because sometimes people get into into a market like this. And they want to do everything. They don't want to just sell you a part or a piece. They want to sell you the whole thing complete. And is it the experience that you have with it, with a lot of resourceful sand people that that you end up uh, supplying a part or a piece, or they'll get their own motors and all this kind of stuff? And, and I want to get into the motor variations that they have in, in a second. But um, how much stuff when these guys are first doing their conversions? Like, is there a specific motor they're looking for? I mean, are you because your your website's super helpful, and so were you right out of the gate just giving lots of advice as to like, hey, I'll just sell you half the parts or the injection pieces and whatnot, and helping people get things like that on the ground. Sure. So for my dune buggy side, uh, really people want turnkey engines, but we're we're totally open to a la carte type of purchasing where someone might want to do this project all themselves, like you mentioned. <clears throat> so not opposed to someone buying a, a motor themselves and putting it together. I won't take their motor and make a turnkey engine because then I'm setting myself up for using a used motor that could blow up, you know, three weeks down the road. And then the guy's going to say, well, you know, whose fault was it? Did you do it? So, you know, I don't deal with used motors anymore. If uh, someone wants to do a, you know, be on the cheap side and buy their own used motor, I will mm -hmm. sell them all the parts to make this happen. So that might be alternator brackets and shortened oil pans and adapter kits and computer and wire harness. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. And, and what I really do, first time a person calls me uh, asking about some things, I really kind of clear there and tell them, look, this is kind of how much it's going to be costing uh, before we even get started. Because a lot of guys have perceptions of, oh, well, I can go buy a motor for $1,000 and for you know a couple hundred more dollars, I'm going to have a, a Subaru motor running in the VW. And that's really far from the truth. Right. Uh, I'd like to know that, you know, if you bought a motor, you might be buying $3,500 more of parts from me in order to make that motor work. Uh, that's really easy to, I mean, I could talk to you about a computer and wire harness at $1,700 and a shortened oil pan at $270 and a, and a header, you know, uh, uh, let's see a fuel pump and the adapter kit is $480. I mean, right there, I just rattle off, three thousand dollars worth of parts plus sure. your motor so and plus all your time so uh, people have to realize that it's never going to be a you know two or three thousand dollar ordeal they have to prepare themselves if i sell a, a 2.5 non-turbo turnkey package for seven thousand dollars and of course that's rebuilt also so the whole motor is rebuilt clearly you could make that package happen probably in the three to $4,000 area. It depends on how resourceful you are and how much time you put in there. Um, but you're going to have a used motor at three or $4,000 and it won't look pretty easy. There won't be any cosmetic parts. My $7,000 motor package is rebuilt, chrome and polish, all done. The motor runs. You can hear it run on a test stand before you even pick it up. So, <clears throat> you know, and then once you kind of realize that, hey, the motor might cost me three, four, five, maybe even $7,000, you have to realize that that's no radiator, that's not installed, that's just the motor sitting there. So, you know, installing a, uh, a motor, making water lines, uh, putting a radiator in, that could very easily be a couple thousand more dollars to install into a bug. Yeah. And, you know, some of the, th some of the things, you know, there's a, there's a Subaru swap site uh, on Facebook and it's a group that uh, th they're VW people that are putting Subarus. And so a lot of the guys are DIY guys. And so for people that are like in the do it yourself or stuff, I mean, all the parts and pieces they can get directly from you, I'm assuming in order to do that conversion. Um, what I wanted to talk about was, the main difference is with a Subaru long block versus a VW long block, obviously one's water cooled, but does the Subaru motor come with like a, a factory counterweighted crank? Um, obviously the oiling system, I mean, head and shoulders, the design is we're, we're talking, it's 30 years advanced, same engine technology. Yeah. The Subaru is far superior than any Volkswagen motor. They have five main bearing journals where a VW bug, you know, uh, has only three main journals. The case is made out of aluminum, not magnesium. 
Uh, you know, it's water cooled, uh, 16 valve technology. So all Subaru motors have 16 valves. That, um, well, I should say all EJ motors from 1990 on, Subaru had a drastic uh, platform change. So things before 1990, no one uses anything that old. You know, they went from a, an EA motor, uh, you know, twin timing belts, and it was an old school Subaru water cool. It was kind of their their old motor. And in 1990, they made a drastic change, and that's when the EJ series came out. And so the EJ series covers 1.8, 2.0, 2.2, and 2.5. So all those four motors are basically based off the same block, the same oil pump, same oil pan, same adapter kit and flywheel. Uh, the blocks are almost effectively interchangeable. They're the same size. And so things became very consolidated. And now, so those are the primary motors that you guys met, that you guys do are the EJ platform. That's, that's the most universal, easily adaptable, and everything that you build is around that platform? Yeah, nothing's older than, we never do anything older than 1990 because that would be, uh, it wouldn't be an EJ platform. Correct. Yeah. And so on the EJ platform, and we're talking like for a conversion for a Volkswagen, we talked a little bit previously to the podcast and a lot of these guys, like some of the biggest challenges when people come to you with Volkswagen conversions, obviously they, they, everybody walks in. It's like this, it's the same Volkswagen guy that we've always been dealing with, right? He wants 300 horsepower, daily drive reliability, and the same thing they wanted with air cooled. But now they go, well, it, it's a Subaru, so it should be able to handle that. But what's the reality? I mean, uh, perfect question. So my opinion should would be that you may, you want to target 200 horsepower. Remember, a stock VW is making 70 horsepower. So to go 200, you're you're three times the horsepower, and you're just going to make your your life a lot easier. the The problem is a lot of guys uh, shoot for the moon. They want to do a turbo. The turbo adds so much extra uh, complexity to the situation. There's no good place to put the turbo. You got to cut your firewall out. And then I've seen guys make, you know, wooden boxes behind their back seat. Uh, you know, heat is, they put the radiator in this wooden box. Uh, they have, you know, hot air coming into the cab. I mean, I've just seen so many different conversions of people, you know, cutting fenders because they want to use a two liter turbo, which is a four cam engine. I mean, just all these different, everyone has these different ideas of what they want to do because they don't know anything about Subarus. The bottom line, single overhead cam, either a 2.2 if you're emissions or if you're not emissions, you should be looking at a 2.5 single overhead cam. And the years I like is uh, that the years would be 2000 to 2003 in that range. Uh, that gives you a low profile intake manifold. You can make 200 horsepower. Uh, it's not a drive-by wire throttle body. It's a drive-by cable. And uh, that would be the best platform for someone to do and make 200 horsepower. And when they're looking to do something like that, there's been a lot of guys that uh, I have a square back that I want to do a conversion on. And um, a lot of guys are taking the intake manifold and like they're, they're cutting it and then reversing it, welding it back up together. What's been your experience with messing with the factory air intake manifold and the throttle by all that kind of stuff? I mean, what's for the most success is it try to leave it as factory as possible, or do you have a better alternative? Yeah, there's no reason to ever cut an intake manifold. We have a, we have first of all the EJ series. All the intake manifolds are reversible, so you can just take them off and turn them around 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, the throttle body is running into the alternator, so you got to relocate the alternator. <clears throat> we make a custom reverse alternator bracket that allows the throttle body to be turned around, uh, or the intake to be turned around and have the throttle body come out the back of the car. So that's the easiest way. And then the other option is to leave the uh, is to remote mount the throttle body. People get in this uh, groove where they think the throttle body has to be bolted to the intake. You can simply take the throttle body off, make a tube, a U-bend, a 180, a scorpion tail, whatever you want to do uh, that relocates the throttle body to allow your uh, your motor package to fit in there, maybe without cutting the firewall. You know, people put a they put a motor in there, throttle body is touching their firewall, and they they are oh man, I gotta start cutting. No, just just take the throttle body off. Uh, we have we have flanges that you can buy that bolt right onto the intake manifold, and you can just remote mount it with a two and a half inch U bend or a ninety or something like that. 
And so that, I mean, the manifold, everybody's in their head maybe thinking it's like a carburetor. It's got to be sitting in a certain position or a certain angle. I mean, does it really matter what angle it's, I mean, as long as your linkage is working properly, it doesn't really matter if it's facing left, right, up, down, or, or whatever. It's just basically monitoring. It's just controlling air intake, right? Correct. So because the injectors inject right at the cylinder heads, uh, only air is going through the throttle body. So it literally could be upside down backwards, a 180. Uh, air finds its way around anything. It could be sharp corners. I mean, not that's not ideal, but <clears throat> ideally, you know, air air can go any which way you want. So maybe you might not have the typical throttle the throttle cable that comes up that metal tube on a Type One, right. but you might want to hook in a, like a sheathing and have the cable come up and around and maybe go sideways. It might go, you know, throttle body might be mounted sideways in the car, and with a little bit of sheathing. And a little longer throttle cable, you could make anything work. So now, if people if people need to have their Volkswagen, let's say it, it like here in in Las Vegas, we can't have anything sixty sixty eight and later has to be smogged. So if someone's got to have something that smogs, I would think a bone stock Subaru without any EFI with I'm sorry without any smog stuff on it would outperform from a smog standpoint a Type One. But there's been this thing where where some some people use. I've seen a, a couple of companies out there that they just modify a factory computer. What are the pros and cons to that? And, and I mean, is it just, a, is this a ton of labor for no reason or what's your take on that? So we don't do anything with stock ECUs. There's quite a few companies out there that do that. Uh, they're more the Vanagon kind of guys who, you know, there's a lot of guys that do Van, uh, Subaru and Vanagons. They're really into doing the stock ECU. So, uh, one is that stock ECU conversion. I don't know what the cost is, but I've heard it might be 800 to $1,200, somewhere in that range where uh, they make a custom wire harness for you. Well, my aftermarket ECU is $1,700, but there's no way the aftermarket ECU is going to be clean enough for factory emissions. So if you have to be smog, you have to work with the stock ECU. The other benefit with the stock ECU is you have really easy starting when it's cold, because it can control the idle speed control motor. Uh, maybe you might get a little bit better gas mileage. Again, you're sacrificing performance for gas mileage. Uh, and then the other thing, uh, the negative about that is the factory ECU requires a uh, mass air flow sensor. So you have to deal with this mass air flow sensor between your air filter and your intake manifold or your air filter and your throttle body. And that's pretty cumbersome with my ECU. Uh, you're just using a map sensor, so a small hose goes in, take manifold, and it could be as simple as the air filter goes right on the throttle body. So that makes things really clean. But again, it that doesn't work for a, a person who has to have emissions. So some of the main things that people need for uh, for the conversions into a into a sedan or a, a Type Three is the flywheel package, the flywheel and bell housing package, um, the sh the shortened oil pan that you guys make. Um, the, and then, the, like we talked about, the, the manifold's reversible, and then a, an EFI or fuel management. Have you seen a lot of people have been doing like the um, what's the super inexpensive EFI controller, mega a mega squirt? Now, how does a mega squirt compare to like something that that you do or that you sell to someone for as far as fuel management? So. Uh... I might be negative here, but I'm just going to tell you what my opinion is. Mega Squirt and, uh, you know, these homemade uh, ECUs or inexpensive ECUs, um, I've replaced quite a few of them. If you're real bottom of the barrel scraping, you're really on a budget, maybe you want to go that way. Uh, but our wire harness, um, uh, well, let me talk to that. I don't ever tune a mega squirt in my shop. I don't even know how, meaning I don't have the software. I don't care to do that uh, because that's kind of a do it yourself thing. I'm not going to spend my time. I've wasted my time with mega squirts before, have misfires and uh, real bad high RPM operation, things like that. And so it's like, why am I trying to tune an inferior uh, ECU and computer? Uh, and, you know, it's on a budget deal. And usually the customer that's coming to me is on a major budget. So, you know, the mega score kind of computer, that's for a guy who wants to do it themselves and he's okay with doing 4,000 RPM and cruising down the road. Uh, but that's just not going to work. I've taken too many of those off to want to even deal with that kind of ECU. Sure. And, and so t and touching on that, like on, on the do it yourself kind of guy, 
we talked about what motors he should look for. Is there any telltale things? Like, let's say you're looking at a motor. A guy says, hey, I have this motor for my conversion. It's got X amount of miles on it. And, you know, is there any telltale things? Like with a VW, you grab end plane, you check the end plane. If it's all wobbled out, you can, if you can see the end plane, it's like, don't even bother because the thing needs a whole rebuild. What's been your experience in regards to um, how, how bulletproof are these things from the factory on the bottom end? And what do they typically require when you're starting with a rebuild or do you rebuild the whole thing when you rebuild it from the inside out completely? Yeah. So first of all, uh, the year 2000 to 2003, like the single red cam 2.5 that I like, uh, that's a phase two motor. A phase two motor had some upgrades where the thrust bearing was larger. Uh, the bottom end really are bulletproof. Uh, can they have problems? Sure. But there's not any external signs that you're going to really see on a Subaru. The best thing I would say is take off the oil cap and look how dirty the oil cap looks on the inside. That's usually an indication on how often the oil has changed. If you have the ability to the oil pan off, uh, first thing I would do is pull the oil pan off uh, before you do anything. Uh, make sure if there's no debris or not, there's heavy sludge, you know, if there's metallic down there, I mean, hey, the motor's bad, it's going to go bad. Right. If it's uh, no metallic down there and it's not uh, really a lot, like a lot of sludge or something in there, then I would call that a winner. Um, there are some claims out there on the internet where the single red cam 2.5 motor has issues with head gaskets. Uh, I don't buy that as often as people claim. I mean, they say that all the time, but even if the head gaskets were bad, you can upgrade them to the STI head gasket, which is a far superior head gasket. It's a pretty easy job. So maybe you might see some external uh, water leaking out of the head gasket area. Okay, so you need head gaskets. But in my case, all my turnkey engines are rebuilt, so all that gets addressed anyways. And how, like the heads with the Volkswagens, like you said, even on your 2.9 liter, you drop valve seats, stuff like that. On these motors, the head design on these, I mean, are they pretty – bulletproof or do you go through and redo the heads completely or I mean, does, it just, does it just depend on the condition of the heads when you get them? Well, both. The heads are really bulletproof. I mean, you could wipe out a cam journal with really bad oil and you get some scarring. There's no cam bearings in there. The cams ride directly in the head. So, you know, there's a possibility you could have some cam uh, issues going on there, but that's pretty rare. Uh, the heads what we do is we do, uh, you know, a valve job is $550 for a pair of heads. So if you send me your heads, uh, we do the complete valve job, valve adjustment, cleaning. We uh, pull out every galley plug. There's lots of galley plugs and cylinder heads. We pipe clean all the ga the galleys out and we send them back to you all ready to bolt on. And so I, I know that when I, I, I want to say when I got a motor from you, what's a rebuilt long block? Like someone wants to come to you and say, hey, John, I'm looking for a rebuilt long block from you. What's it going to cost me for a rebuilt long block that's, you know, that's that's something I can start my conversion with, and I'm kind of on a budget, let's say. What, what are they looking to spend? Well, that's where they're going to realize that uh, real fast that maybe buying a turnkey from me is a better way to go. Because if you brought me a motor, if you brought me a motor that had no exhaust and no intake on it, so it had valve covers, and I uh, had an oil pan on it. That's how I would get it from you in the most stripped down uh, uh, shape. Mm -hmm. And if you handed me that motor, uh, the average price I would tell you is somewhere in the three to $3,500 range to rebuild that motor. Uh, that's doing, uh, you know, bearings, uh, uh, piston rings, valve, uh, doing a valve job, head gaskets, and reassembling the motor. That would be a typical price. So understanding that it costs three or $3,500 and you bring me the motor, which costs you, you know, five hundred or a thousand dollars. You're already four thousand dollars into the equation, and now you know that I'm going to sell you three thousand dollars worth of parts, uh, the computer and the adapter kit and the oil pan. So by the time you're done, if you bought a used motor, you had me rebuild it, and then you want to make a turnkey engine, you might as well just let me sell you a turnkey engine. So lastly, camshafts, do you do much in, re in respect to camshafts or it's not really needed? I mean, what's the power band on these motors, power band and redline? Like what, where are we at without that on the Subarus with the single cams? Sure. So when we do our tuning with our aftermarket ECU, our rev limiter is set at 7,000 RPM. And by the time they're finally done with all their headaches, they still have to buy a $1,700 computer to have it done right. You know, computer and wire harness. 
and then and then at that point they just wasted a thousand bucks yeah and there's a couple different uh there's a couple different computer setups that are out on the market i know there was one that was a stinger and i think that's what i had on my car at the time yeah that's, that was the computer i used for the last 20 years it was fantastic but the processor is not made anymore so they stopped making that computer about a year ago so if you've got it and it runs good it's great if you got it and it's not running good you're just gonna need to upgrade your setup yeah and so what efi system do you suggest that people use now i use a link computer the later model link they call it a link x mm -hmm. or it's they call it link atom x and that's the latest and greatest uh great ecu uh basically the same price as the stinger we haven't changed the price any and uh so it's just a better ecu now and then in in respect to some of the other parts and pieces i mean the big caveat i think that people have to get over when they're converting an air cooled to water cooled in a sedan or a car because in an off-road vehicle it's easy just to put a radiator bolt it out back over you know to the roll bar and and run it like that but when you're doing um one of these conversions an air cooled to water cooled car some of the biggest issues because i'm sure people have brought you some real rattle traps to work on and I, I think some of the biggest issues they have is people don't understand how radiator quite works with airflow you know yeah that's a big problem i had a guy that just came in the other day and he had a big radiator in the front of his car in a bug he had no louvers, no anything. He made a little scoop down below the balance and he expected the air to go up there. And then he had these two little eight inch fans on a radiator. They almost looked big, you know, small enough to be computer fans. I mean, it was like kind of ridiculous. And he goes, well, you know, the air is going to ram up here. It's going to go through here and it's only going to go through the radiator. And I'm all, no, this isn't going to work. I don't even know if it's going to work for the dyno. And uh, once the car got hot on the dyno, it never cooled down. We had to actually shut the car off to let the water cool down because it would not cool down with his, both his fans working. And yeah. so this is really a common problem. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things with these cars is I, my, I had a sand car that had an NA motor and the NA motor had an aftermarket turbo set up on it. And the guy I ended up trading that car to, I told him, I said, I only run race gas because I made one mistake one time and not running race gas because an NA motor, what is, what's the compression setup on one of those NA motors typically? They're all 10 to one. So 10 to one and you add a, and you add turbo on top of that, you're pushing 14, 15, you know, to one compression oh, yeah. under boost. Yeah. Well, yeah, your 15 to one compression would theoretically be uh, seven and a half pounds of boost as it's just not tolerable on 91 octane gas. So there's just no way to do that. You know, people always think, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that and I'm going to run low boost. Well, what's low boost? You know, they think seven or eight pounds is low boost and that's enough to blow them. I mean, the motor can barely run on 91 octane with no turbo, let alone one or two or three pounds of boost. So, uh, you know, if I'm again now if i'm building the motor and i'm doing a turnkey engine i can set the compression and make it be 8.3 to 1 which is what we do for turbo on pump gas mm -hmm. uh, but again the, to do a turbo application in a bug you just have to have a lot of patience and time and it might be so overwhelming that the project never gets done that's why i'm a big promoter for the 200 horsepower make it work and if that's not enough then you work from there and I have to, I have to ask you this question. I'm sure you've seen the video that's been all over YouTube recently with the uh, blue super beetle. That's got uh, a 500 horsepower Subi set up in it. Have you, have you happened to see that video yet? Uh, I think I did see that where a guy took a lady for a ride or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And he's got just an immense amount of power in that, in that, uh, in that beetle, but that guy's done. I mean, it looks like that guy's a professional fabricator and uh and, and did quite a bit of work you know just to shoehorn that thing in there plus you know two-thirds of his back seat section's gone because you know half the oh, the boost pipes and all that stuff are, are up in that area right and that you know uh i just saw that one time but you know the average the average if you will uh vw enthusiast doesn't have those capabilities and doesn't have the time or or uh, uh to wear make that happen yeah, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, you know, 
a lot of people think about, at least what I've been thinking about when in the process of converting my car, which I haven't started yet. I've, I've got the, the grill, the grill mouth cut under the front bumper. Um, I've been talking with some people about doing, you know, the radiator placement and the air intake and, and the air exhaust that goes through the radiator and actually sealing that off. So it's in its own compartment, the air comes up underneath and out through the frame head of the car. Um, so it doesn't kind of baffle inside the, inside the hood. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is in theory, you should be able to run, you know, if you wanted to put this in their square back or whatever, you should be able to run the, uh, AC and I mean, you know, an AC compressor and all that kind of stuff. And that really wouldn't tax those motors too much, would it? So the first problem is if you turn the intake manifold around and you reverse the alternator, like, you know, we commonly do. Uh, then that the alternator is now in the AC compressor location. So if you're planning on doing AC, you have to have the intake manifold left in the stock location and the alternator left in the stock location. And that means for sure you're going to be modifying or relocating the throttle body, but having the intake with standard orientation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, how far would you need to, um, let's say you wanted to, that you wanted to do that? Could you actually take, how far can you move that uh, throttle body away from the intake mouth? I mean, could you move it? You, you could move it 18 inches if you wanted. I mean, it's not going to be a, any major dramatic issue. And you could put a hard 90 bend at the mouth of the, uh, at the mouth of the intake manifold. Yes. So the problem is with AC, the, the, the compressor is not going to tax the motor as far as that goes, mm -hmm. but condenser is going to be the issue where do you put the condenser which you know is normally like a little mini radiator in front of the radiator uh in a car because there's no room for a radiator up there i mean it's already bad enough so to put a condenser up there you're really looking for it. and then that just means you're heating up the air before it gets to the radiator which is already going to be you know under you know it's not going to be sufficient enough in the first place i haven't seen someone do an effective one that works really well uh, but I, I can see there's some potential there. Now, do you work with, so, so you don't do any of the conversions because you obviously don't have a facility to get, because really every car, unless you spent six months making custom parts to convert a type one, a type two, a type three, I mean, it's all custom work and you don't really do much of that because you don't really have the, the manpower or the, or the, the desire to go to that length of the conversions, right? Yeah, so I, I have the manpower. I have 12 employees, but uh, we're so busy doing things that we're proficient at. So the problem is, is that I can't be efficient at putting a radiator in a VW bug. There's just too many possibilities, like you mentioned, that there's some of the customers might be on the cheaper side. And I mean, I've seen some guys go to other shops and they charge them $1,500 to put a radiator in the front. And it's a horrible job. And it's not efficient it doesn't even work and so i suppose someone could come up with i could come up with a vw bug radiator package or something but you know one of them i did i i took the gas tank out and we put a you know a, a 10 by 30 uh you know vw like a like a you know a round tank <clears throat> one of those uh buggy tanks in there and that way we we had tons of air uh we had all the the air so the radiator so one of the problems is not just getting radi air up to the radiator, but you have to have air leave the radiator. And there's so little room where that spare tire goes that you're really pushing the air with a fan right up against the gas tank or the bulkhead up there. And so there's no way for the air to leave. And so when we did that one where we put a, you know, a 10 by 30 gas tank up there, it really opened up a lot of area for the radiator to discharge the hot air. Right, because that's a lot of those are a lot of the, the 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 parts that people don't think of when they're doing these conversions is like getting the hot air, like cooling off the radiator. Where's the hot air go? Yes. Now, yeah, they, they just think well, I put a radiator in there, I put a fan on, and everything's going to be okay. Uh, the bottom line is you have to have natural airflow. You do not want your fan to ever have to come on while you're driving down the road. If if it does, then your cooling system is insufficient. Uh, ideally, you have vents and ducting and whatnot so that at 30 or 40 mile an hour sustained speed that you have enough airflow that the fan would never come on. You know, so I got some guys that bury a radiator in the back seat area. 
well, there's zero airflow there. So the fans have to run all the time and they don't, even, you know, so even if you're going 50, 60 miles down the road, the fans have to be on. That's, that's a poor planning of a cooling system. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot that goes into that aspect of the conversion. I think the key aspect is once you figured out the, the, you know, how to cool the, how to cool the water, the water cooling system, you know, once you get that eliminated, it's build that reliable power plant and then put those things in there. I mean, what, what kind of mileage do people get out of these typical Subaru motors? I mean, what's the most mileage you've seen on one of these, these, uh, EJ motors? Well, believe it or not, we do lots of Porsche replica, uh, motors and I've had some, you know, those are very light. Those are lighter than a VW bug. I mean, they're a really small fiberglass on a bug uh, pan. And uh, I have had some reports of over 30 miles to the gallon. Uh, so I, I don't get tons of report about the normal mileage, but I would say in the mid to high 20s would be a range for a VW bug kind of thing. And then like lifespan of these motors, when you're putting in these conversions on these lighter cars like this, I mean, what's the most mileage you've seen accrued on a stock motor as far as miles, thousands of miles? Uh, I don't have any data on that, but but because they're usually in a more of a it's not in a daily driver, it's more of a weekend warrior kind of a car. Sure. You know, Porsche, replica, maybe fair weather because it's a convertible and those kind of things. So they're not seeing the type of mileage on there. But there's no reason why that motor can't go you know 100,000 miles, right? I mean, it would go three times longer than any VW Bug motor would go. That's for sure. And on these motors, do you start when when you're building somebody a motor? You start, I mean, there's no shortage of uh, rebuildable cores out there, and you start with rebuildable cores, or do you start with all new stuff? Yeah, it's a rebuildable cores. We, basically, we start with uh, cores that are, you know, a blown-up motor. Because because we rebuild every one of them, uh, we're, we buy cores pretty cheap because we're buying them in any condition. They, you know, they could have a rod knock. They could have a broken timing belt, bent valves. They could have anything because we're just buying it as a core we are going to do a valve job. We're going to be doing bore. We're going to put a you know crankshaft bearings in there. So it really doesn't matter for us. And our shop, we're pretty big. We do our own in-house boring, rod resizing. You know, a lot of the procedures we do in our in-house. And on the factory internals on these motors, I mean, is it a counter, is it a counterweight crank and heavy-duty rods and that from the factory? I mean, compared to comparatively to a VW, or uh, do you typically upgrade all that stuff, or is that more saved for boost motors? So the cranks are fantastic. A stock crank could handle, you know, 800 horsepower. I mean, they're just really, really a, a strong unit. Uh, so there's no, there's no problem with the bottom end and non-turbo form. They're really a, a strong unit. Once you go turbo, obviously you want to beef up the rods and put better pistons in. Uh, but in a non-turbo application, the bottom end is just stout, really stout. And do they, uh, they typically lighten flywheels in these things or, or they run with a, is the factory flywheel pretty light compared to VW? Uh, the, uh, the, the uh, adapter kit that Kennedy sells, it's probably very similar to what a VW is. Maybe it's a little bit heavier. Uh, nobody really lightens the flywheel. Uh, lightening the flywheel would be like a drag, drag race type of a thing because in street application and you're pushing along a heavier car, if you have too light of a flywheel, you let the clutch out too fast and it can slow down too fast because it's light, doesn't have any mass behind it. And so you could stall your motor. So believe it or not, in the Vanagon application, we make a custom flywheel that's heavier than normal because you want to have the momentum going so that when you take off in a, you know, a 4,000 pound Vanagon, that it doesn't just stall on you every time. So uh, there's zero reason to be wanting to have a lightened flywheel street application short of you being a drag racer now speaking of vanigans is that let's say for vws that lend themselves to conversions is that the easiest is that, is that the most straightforward conversion is like a, a water-cooled vanigan yeah there's uh there's a couple of companies out there uh, uh that are specific on vanigans i mean actually there's probably you know five or six uh, companies out there and they really specialize in the Vanagon. It's great because it is water cooled. So they're really kind of dealing mostly with the stuff in the back, uh, not having to install a radiator or having to install water lines. So yeah, it's pretty, it's, it makes it pretty convenient to the, do that conversion. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a fascinating, wide open realm of the things that you can do with these SUBI conversions. And I just think the, the only thing really holding these back, honestly, from really taking over the VW aftermarket is really somebody that could put together a turnkey conversion package. In other words, they go to you buy a turnkey motor and then someone else will be able to supply them with the sheet metal, the pieces and parts that are easily that make the conversion that much easier because I think that's the challenge where a lot of people end up getting lost is just trying to do, they don't realize how much more there is to a water cooled motor in respect to, uh, you know, doing that conversion. Now, right. Now, do they make, uh, do you use on your applications, you, you guys use stock water pumps and all that stuff? Oh yeah. You know, a water pump is not a positive displacement pump. It just circulates the water. So as long as the cooling system is full, the radiator could be, you know, three feet higher than the engine. That's not a problem because the water, whatever is pushing up is also coming down. And it's just rotating. It's just circulating the water. It's not really uh, lifting the water. So the, the problem comes in a, in a cooling system that was like that with a radiator pie. If you were somehow low on water, like if you were, you know, two quarts low, the water pump is not going to push the water uphill and over this, you know, air brake that's at the top of the radiator. So sure. uh, water pump can push forward. It could go to the front of the car. It just circulates the, the it just circulates the water. And then going back to the core motors that you pick up, what do you see as the most common, like what's the most common reason for people to be blowing up these motors? Uh, well, boy, there, that's an open question. The, the, the turbo motors is clearly because they, you know, add extra boost or they put in cheap gas and they're cracking ring lands. That's like a really common scenario, but we're not dealing with turbo motors. So we're really dealing with non-turbo motors. Right. And as so, of course, if you're following my example of doing a non-turbo single red cam motor, uh, as far as what they come in for, boy, uh, shabby workmanship, someone does a tiny belt and they, you know, break something and bend the valves. That might be one thing. Uh, lose a crank bearing. Um, those would be the typical things of why we would be seeing that motor as a core motor. And on these on these motors, do you run you run synthetic oil in these motors, or do you run just conventional oil? Well, I tell all my customers there's good, better, and best. So the best would be uh, we run Mobile One uh, is what we recommend uh, if they want to spend the best amount of money, uh, best oil. If they don't want to do that, the next best would be like VR1 racing oil. I love that oil. Uh, VR stands for Valvoline Racing, so it's easy to remember VR1 racing oil. And then after that, then the good oil would just be any normal dinosaur oil, you know, Castrol, Valvoline, a multi-grade 1040, that type of thing. So 1040 is like the recommended recommended viscosity that you use for these type of motors in your average application with decent weather. Yeah. Average application, fair weather, you know, these are, if we rebuild them, you know, the, if, if it was a brand new stock motor, maybe it could even be thinner uh, oil, uh, you know, some 1030, maybe some 520, that kind of thing. Uh, but that would be like if we bought it, we started with a brand new short block, bearing clearances are really tight. Uh, so you get away with a little bit thinner oil. But if we rebuild them, 1030, 1040 is totally the type of oil we would be using. And sometimes in dune buggy application, we pretty much recommend 1550-2050. Okay, so and that's just because the motor's going to run a little hotter, a little more on the top end going through the Well, just, you're going to be working it harder, and the bearing clearances are opened up a lot more. I mean, you know, they're pretty generous because guys are winging these things at four, five, 6,000 RPM all the time. So bearing clearance has to be looser. So the, the oil, you know, it, it's, it's protecting that looser clearance. Oh really? So on an off-road motor application, you'll you'll have a little more tolerance in the bearing than you will with a stock with a factory setup. Oh yeah, yeah. Stock setups. Uh, you know, uh, if you're into engine building, uh, you know, a standard the, the rule of thumb for aftermarket building is one thou per inch of rod journal. So if a rod journal was two inches in diameter, the typical rod bearing clearance would be two thou. But in a factory motor. Uh, rod bearing clearance will hover in the seven tenths to one thou for that same journal. So that's really, really tight. Wow. Uh, 
what they're able to do with a really tight bearing clearance is run thinner oil. Thinner oil promotes better gas mileage and factories are looking for, you know, maximum gas mileage. That's, that's really, you know, that, that is really important to them. So thinner oils help in, uh, you know, having a motor run freer, but to have sustained high RPM operation with a rod journal that has seven tenths bearing clearance, that is just like, you know, looking for some issues there. No, I, I'm surprised at how tight those factory tolerances are. And then with you seeing so many rebuilt motors, these things having five rod journals, usually the bottom ends, like you said earlier, are pretty solid. So if a guy's, let's say a guy's out there, kind of a DIY guy, and he's he's going to use you as a resource to get parts and stuff like that, but he's just really a hands-on guy and wants to do it. Um, the bottom ends, if, if he checks, you can. there's some ways that he can check the tolerance on the bottom end. Uh, without blowing it apart that you can tell if it's, I mean, can you look, is it, what's a telltale sign that you'd look at a, a short block and see if it, it needs to be gone through? Well, every short block does get gone through. There, there's no looking at something and saying, yeah, I can run this thing as a good short block. And the other thing is in order for you to see the main journal bearings, the, the, the actual block comes apart. So you're all the way down to the fair you know, you're to the very last part when you're checking rod and main bearings. It's not like a inline four cylinder where you could drop main bearing, you know, caps and take a look at your main bearings or even sneak them out of there, you know, like a Honda or, a, you know, just any kind of inline four. Yeah. That's easy on a Subaru. Uh, it's a lot more labor intensive because you're splitting the cases to get down to the main bearings. And how many of these motors, when you rebuild them, how many of them stay a stand like a standard board? Do you line board many of the cases or it's not needed? So because they're aluminum cases, line boring is very rare. Uh, you know, VWs, you could do one, two, three steps over. Who knows how many steps you can go over, and they sell bearing bearings like that. But in the Subaru world, there's only really one oversized bearing. It's a 10-thou oversized uh, for the case. So, uh, And the only time we're really uh, line boring the case is if there was a, a problem, like they spun a main bearing. That's very rare. Or if they are, if we're building a really high performance motor and we're using uh, ARP case bolts, uh, stock case bolts get torqued to effectively in the 35 uh, feet pound of torque uh, range. Mm -hmm. And so when you do aftermarket case bolts, you could be torquing the block up to 50 or 60 pounds. And if that's the case, then you're distorting the main bearing journal size. You know, it's becoming an egg shape. So if you ever use aftermarket case bolts, you have to line bore. And so then it triggers having an oversized bearing. Yeah. And then I saw that you do, you, you do something in regards to the, the, you seal the decks on the, uh, on the blocks. Like you, um, you do like a, like you fill in the, the void around the, uh, around the cylinder. Yeah. We call it a closed deck block. It's basically a girdle that gets put inside the block. Uh, that's what we're famous for. Though it's probably uh, the most famous thing that we do is our closed deck block. We have you know people over a thousand horsepower with four cylinder motors with our closed deck blocks running. Um, but that is not something that someone doing a non turbo motor would ever do. That would be a waste of money. Uh, simply, you know, a, a non turbo just doesn't have really big cylinder pressure. No reason to support the cylinders with the girdle. So you would just run a regular block. And so your, your advice is typically if a guy's going to do a VW conversion and you want it to be as pain-free as possible, you're saying a single cam motor is just fine for a VW conversion. Uh, any of the, the typical EJ, the biggest single cam motor that they make is, is, uh, is that the, like a EJ 18 or do they? No, EJ so basically EJ and then 18 means 1.8 liter and right. EJ five is 2.5 liter. So the, the two single red cam common motors is the 2.2 and the 2.5. Those two are both, uh, you know, they make them in non in the single red cam non turbo application. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, to recap that, if you have emission requirements, you, you have to use a stock ECU and the typical motor package is a 2.2 uh, to me. Uh, I'm hoping that you could, you know, that your application will be for off-road or that you have a, you know, a car that doesn't need any, any you're in a state where the, the emissions don't matter, then you could run a 2.5 single red cam. And that's just the best, biggest bang for the buck. Yeah. Well, 
John, I tell you, we've covered a lot of stuff tonight, and I and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think is something maybe important that when people are considering doing a conversion or, or going through the stuff, like anything that we didn't cover that you think might need to be discussed? Uh, no, I think we probably covered most of it. I'd be glad to come back for you know round two if you have some uh, feedback from your uh, from your clientele that that watches this video. Uh, be glad to answer any of those questions. No, absolutely, man. And I, I definitely appreciate you. I know you're a busy guy and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and uh, I will definitely, I'll definitely have you back for a round too, because I think there's a lot more. I'm going to start digging into this as I start uh, really getting ready to do this conversion. You know, I gotta, I gotta get a plan put together and figure out what I'm doing and, and trying to get the most reliable. I want to be able to take my, my 67 square back and, uh, and be able to hop on the freeway and, and take off on a 300, 400 mile trip and not have to worry about a thing. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that's a reality for me in the near future. So, yeah, sounds great. And I have some pictures that I'll, uh, I can forward you at the shop on uh, some of the applications. Maybe one of them was in a bug where, you know, there's an intake manifold was reversed and throttle body was remote mounted. So you can kind of take some, some looks at, at those. No, I definitely pre- I definitely appreciate it, and uh, we'll for sure we'll sh- for sure have you on again. And thanks for coming on the podcast. All right, thanks, Bill. Hope you guys like that podcast because I enjoyed it. I got a lot of information for the Subaru conversion, and I'm looking forward to taking the next step on my Subaru conversion. That's project number six in the list of projects that I have to do. But let's get some shout outs to people that supported the podcast this week: George Delfino out of Bakersfield, California; Albert Hales, Cranberry, PA; Wyatt Bales out of Hagerstown, Maryland. I appreciate you guys for supporting the podcast. And don't forget, if you want a shout out, go pick up some merch at letstalkdubs.com slash store, or feel free to go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, type up your five-star review, leave a response, and you'll get a shout out on the podcast. So we appreciate you guys. I love bringing it to you, and I love that you guys enjoy the podcast. So so like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and go subscribe to our YouTube channel. A lot of these videos I'm slowly starting to put up on YouTube. You guys get over there, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Let's uh, let's get the subscriber count up there, man. I'm looking forward to it. And I uh, appreciate all you guys for everything you do to support the podcast. I look forward to seeing you guys some shows coming up this year. And uh, we got good podcasts in the books for you. Don't worry. There's plenty of good content coming up. Until next week, guys. Later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon.